Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast with me, Adam Wagner. Today I'm excited to be sharing with you an extract from my audiobook, Emergency State, which is out now and read by me. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 2. Very Strong Measures 31st of December 2019 to 4th of March 2020 Cases 247 Deaths 3 On the 31st of December 2019, officials informed the China Office of the World Health Organization, the WHO, that they had detected cases of pneumonia in Wuhan City, Hubei province of China, with an unknown cause. On 12th of January 2020, China shared the genetic sequencing of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, the cause of coronavirus disease, COVID-19. The WHO was told the outbreak was associated with exposure in a seafood market in Wuhan City. By the 20th of January, cases had been reported in Thailand, Japan and the Republic of Korea. Three people in Wuhan City had died after contracting the virus. On the 27th of January 2020, with the death toll at 80, the Chinese government imposed a lockdown, a stay-at-home order, in Wuhan and other cities in Hubei province. This affected 57 million people. Transport in and out of the cities was prohibited. All shops were closed except those selling food or medicine. Private vehicles were banned without special permission and travel outside home was limited, with some areas restricting outings to one family member every two days. Enforcement was strict, with officials visiting homes to enforce isolation for anyone found with COVID-19 symptoms. Although this did not prevent up to 5 million people fleeing Wuhan in anticipation of lockdown measures, many of them travelling to crowded megacities such as Beijing or Shanghai, or flying out of the country, potentially seeding further outbreaks. All non-essential businesses in Shanghai were shut and schools suspended. The country's top body, the Standing Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, headed by President Xi Jinping, took direct control of operations. Meanwhile, cases of COVID-19 had been reported in at least 13 other countries, including France, Australia, Canada and the United States. A declaration of an emergency is always a trigger moment. The most important example in those early days of the pandemic happened on the 30th of January 2020. The Director General of the WHO has the power, under the International Health Regulations 2005, the IHR, to declare a public health emergency of international concern if there is an unusual and unexpected event with a serious impact on public health and a significant risk of international spread and international travel or trade restrictions. We will hear more about those regulations later in relation to the origins of our own lockdown laws. For now, it is important to understand that states which sign up to the IHR have a duty to report public health emergencies, and once a public health emergency of international concern is formally declared, they will have legal obligations to respond promptly and comply with WHO recommendations. On the 30th of January, the WHO declared the novel coronavirus outbreak in China to be a public health emergency of international concern. It also issued a warning to the rest of the world 
that they should be prepared for containment, including active surveillance, early detection, isolation and case management, contact tracing and prevention of onward spread of the coronavirus, and must, they said, place particular emphasis on reducing human infection, preventing of secondary transmission and international spread. The WHO commended what they called the very strong measures that China had taken to contain the outbreak. By that date, tens of millions of citizens were locked down, which the WHO said were good not only for that country, but also for the rest of the world. The steer to the rest of the world was clear. They would soon face the new virus, and it was, they said, still possible to interrupt virus spread, provided that countries put in place strong measures to detect disease early, isolate and treat cases, trace contacts, and promote social distancing measures commensurate with the risk. Although the declaration made no mention of the word lockdown, any world leader watching the footage of what strong measures looked like in China and reading the declaration would have seen lockdown as a, if not the, way to control the spread of the novel coronavirus. A few days earlier, Pope Francis had praised China's great commitment to containing the outbreak. Responding to the WHO's declaration, the UK's four chief medical officers advised that the national threat level be raised from low to moderate and that UK governments escalate planning and preparation in case of a more widespread outbreak. They said that it was likely there would be individual cases. That was proved correct when the first confirmed COVID-19 cases were announced the following day, 31st of January, at the Royal Victoria Infirmary in Newcastle. Two Chinese nationals had been staying in York. Press reports confirmed that 83 Britons evacuated from Wuhan to RAF Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire had been quarantined at Arrow Park Hospital in Wirral. Events were now moving very quickly. On the 10th of February, the UK Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Committee reported that outbreaks outside China could not be contained by isolation and contact tracing. If a high proportion of asymptomatic cases were infectious, they said, then these policies would not contain the spread. They estimated that the number of confirmed cases in China was at least 10 times higher than the official number and that there was a realistic probability that there was already sustained transmission in the UK, which would, they said, become established in the coming weeks. On the same day, there was a significant event in the context of our story. The first coronavirus law appeared, the Health Protection Coronavirus Regulations 2020. These regulations shared many of the concerning features of the emergency lawmaking which, unknown to anyone at the time, would continue for over two years. To understand the first set of coronavirus regulations and what would follow, we first need to know about two different kinds of laws and why they are different. Primary legislation is an act of parliament, sometimes also called a statute. Acts start as bills introduced in either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. They tend to go through multiple stages in each house before being approved by both. Crucially, this will include days or even weeks of scrutiny, debate, amendment, consideration by committees, and even something wonderfully called ping-pong, when amendments go to and fro between the houses. The final stage, after approval by both houses, 
is royal assent by the king. Thankfully, in our constitutional monarchy, a formality. After that, the bill becomes an act. For example, my favourite law, the Human Rights Act 1998, and is the law of the land unless and until it is amended or repealed. The other kind of law is secondary legislation, also known as delegated or subordinated legislation, which is subordinate to an Act of Parliament. An Act of Parliament will sometimes give a power, usually to government ministers, to make secondary legislation, usually in the form of something called a statutory instrument. The justification for this kind of law is that the modern state is complicated and that to regulate such a complex environment, we need a lot of laws. Parliament can only scrutinise so much. So while the big important laws are subjected to the gold standard Act of Parliament procedures, with all of the debates, amendments and ping-pong, the finer detail is left to statutory instruments. As the UK Parliament's website puts it, statutory instruments fill in the details of acts and provide practical measures that enable the law to be enforced and operate in daily life. The convenient thing about statutory instruments, from a minister's point of view, is that if they need to be approved by Parliament at all, they will only need a yes or no vote, generally by both houses. There is no prospect of Parliament making amendments, that is, editing the text to make it better. And they are almost always approved. The last successful motion to stop a statutory instrument was in 2000 in the House of Lords and 1979 in the House of Commons. You could think about statutory instruments as children who always need an Act of Parliament as a parent. And the parent of the Health Protection Coronavirus Regulations 2020, the first coronavirus law, was an Act of Parliament called the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984, which from now on I will refer to as the Public Health Act. It may have seemed that the emergency laws, which responded to the emerging pandemic, came out of nowhere. In the eye of the storm, it can seem that everything is new and unprecedented, but often the truth is that similar things have happened before. The danger of forgetting is failing to learn lessons and repeating mistakes. This book is about the emergency measures put in place to attempt to contain the coronavirus and the impact those had on individuals in the state. Before I investigate that, it is important to set the context. Emergency powers have a long history. Many states, including the UK, have emergency enabling laws on the statute book, which, if a state of emergency is declared, trigger strong powers usually for use by the government. Those powers will typically allow the government to enact laws and do whatever is needed to contain the emergency, sometimes bypassing the legislature for expediency. This idea goes back a long way. Ancient Rome had a formal procedure for emergencies called justitium. When the Republic faced existential threats, the highest magistrates or senators would appoint a dictator with sweeping powers and suspend the role of the law courts. The earliest recorded occasion of justitium being invoked was in 465 BC, when the Romans believed they were about to be invaded by the Aequi a belief that turned out to have been mistaken. Virtually all civil affairs and operations could be suspended by decree. The Senate retained financial control and appointed dictators were subject to term limits of six months. Justitium extended to the power to shut public businesses, including those businesses with the potential to hinder the justitium. 
The end of the justicium would be pronounced by a decree of the Senate or the same magistrate that enacted it. The power to appoint dictators was used 95 times over 300 years, until one dictator, Julius Caesar, decided not to give the emergency powers back. In the modern world, the vast majority of constitutions contain a mechanism to declare states of emergency and enable fundamental constitutional rights to be temporarily disapplied. In the human rights context, emergency measures must be strictly required and time-limited, and the rights to life and to have no punishment without law and the prohibition on torture and of slavery cannot be disapplied, also known as being derogated from, even in a time of emergency. Ten European states derogated from some of the rights contained in the European Convention on Human Rights towards the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, for example in order to ban public assemblies, which would ordinarily be protected by the right to freedom of assembly. The UK government has rarely relied on such extreme measures. It was 80 years ago, during the Second World War, when the country was last ruled by government decree. There was scarcely a department of public or private life which was not under government control. Huge codes of detailed sub-laws, frequently amended, had grown. Against this measure of grievous emergency, there was no effective appeal and very little means of objection, while the provisions for compensation were obscure and complex. There were some 1,700 prosecutions every month for offences against the regulations. This account of wartime regulations by C.K. Allen bears striking similarities to what we have just experienced and is a valuable insight into common themes during states of emergency. The laws created to help Britain win the war against Hitler were extensive and extraordinary. Private property had yielded on a vast scale, Allen says, to national necessity. Under the defence regulations, the War Office requisitioned 700,000 acres of land for military purposes. Even six years after the war, the Ministry of Supply still held over 3,000 buildings. In 1948, there were 95,000 houses requisitioned to provide accommodation to the homeless. There was a concern that a flurry of criminal offences were being created by statutory instruments, as many as 700 by the end of the war. Tens of thousands of people were prosecuted each year of the war, even though it was sometimes, as Alan says, transparent that the accused persons did not know and could not have known of the passage of the particular instrument under which he was to be convicted. One troubling example cited in Parliament was the leader of a small religious order who was prosecuted for buying eggs. He had bought them at more than the controlled price from a small supplier described as a widow entirely dependent on her small trade. Neither knew the control price had been changed by a recent order. The magistrates expressed disgust and astonishment that the matter hadn't been dealt with by advice and a caution, but were compelled to convict and give out a fine. The war legislation and similar powers which remained in force many years after the war ended virtually gave carte blanche to executive discretion. Allen says. The Attorney General of the time, Sir Hartley Shawcross, admitted that the purpose of the legislation granting emergency powers was to circumvent any legal challenge, clearly not just a gripe of modern politicians. 
Indeed, the defence regulations resulted in one of the most infamous of all English legal cases, Liversidge v Anderson. A 1941 judgment of the House of Lords, then the most senior appeal court in the UK. Sir John Anderson, the Home Secretary, had detained Robert Liversidge, a businessman, using emergency powers which allowed him to detain a person indefinitely if he had reasonable cause to believe that they were of hostile origin or associations, or had recently been concerned in various acts prejudicial to the public safety or the defence of the realm. Four of the judges decided that the Home Secretary did not need to say why he had made the decision, but merely to confirm that he had the required reasonable cause to believe. In other words, it was enough for him to say, trust me. Reading the judgment, it is clear that the majority of judges were deeply concerned that the matter was one of national security. Rather than interpret reasonable cause to believe, as it normally would have been, giving the courts the responsibility of reviewing the underlying rationale of the decision, Lord Macmillan said that it was right so to interpret emergency legislation as to promote rather than defeat its efficacy. In other words, emergency laws are different. Lord Atkin, a single voice among the law lords, vociferously disagreed. He accused the others of being more executive-minded than the executive. He went on to say, in a dissent which would echo through the ages, In this country, amid the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. They may be changed, but they speak the same language in war as in peace. It has always been one of the pillars of freedom, one of the principles of liberty, for which on recent authority we are now fighting, that the judges are no respecters of persons and stand between the subject and any attempted encroachments on his liberty by the executive, alert to see that any coercive action is justified in law. Lord Atkins' dissenting judgment is what law students now learn. But the majority decision is just as important, as it demonstrates a truth about how judges and others can behave during a national emergency, straining themselves to defer to the executive, terrified that by acting independently they will disrupt the national emergency response. By doing so, Lord Atkin went on, they contort themselves like a character in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Perhaps we could say that Lord Atkin's approach is how we would like to imagine ourselves behaving during such a crisis. But the four-judge majority better indicates how we tend to behave when faced with the brute force of emergency power. We want it to happen. In Allen's view, writing in 1965, the post-war emergency powers probably represented the high watermark of governmental powers in the whole history of English legislation. Indeed, at the time of writing almost two decades later, he remarked that certain elements of the defence regulations remained in place. These ogres are not yet dead, he said, but are suffering death by a thousand cuts. He relates the grimly amusing history of the post-war emergency powers, as the Conservative and Labour parties took turns to criticise each other for retaining the same excessive powers. Freedom, says Allen, is not easily gained, and, once surrendered, however necessary the surrender may be, is even less easily regained. This is because there is always the argument, as made by the government in a 1953 parliamentary debate, 
that we will perhaps be well advised to keep a particular power for a rainy day. Allen tells us back in 1965 that in the post-war debates there was a growing uneasiness about the lack of effective parliamentary check on delegated legislation. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The vast powers given to the government during the Second World War and beyond differed in some respects to the COVID-19 powers we saw in 2020 to 2022. But in many ways they were similar, granting government the power to micromanage the lives of everyone living in the UK, all the way down to whom we socialise with and when we could leave home. A power which applied 24 hours a day and for months at a time. The regulations were ever-changing, at times deeply confusing and almost impossible to challenge. The comparison between the two periods was obvious to those who knew their history, such as Lord Justice Hickenbottom, ruling in late 2020 on one of the most significant legal challenges to the coronavirus regulations, who said that they were possibly the most restrictive regime in the public life of persons and businesses ever, certainly outside of times of war. As I have said, no state of emergency is the same, but the states that emerge share many similar features, the defining one being that we, the public, are asked to, and often willingly do, lend our liberty to the cause of fighting an existential threat. Why do we do it? And how can we ensure our liberty is safely returned? The vast and at times illiberal defence regulations of the Second World War were made under the Emergency Powers Defence Act 1939. What would be the 2020 equivalent as the COVID-19 pandemic arrived at our shores? We now need to talk about the Public Health Act. The date on the Act is 1984, a fact that some lockdown sceptics used to brand the law Orwellian. But in substance, this is a much older piece of legislation, going back to the first version in 1848. It was designed to lay the foundations of sanitary reform, the key aims of which were addressing health inequalities and preventing the spread of infectious diseases such as cholera. You will not find the power to impose lockdowns in the 1984 version of the Public Health Act. Instead, its powers to control communicable disease include barring infected persons from places of work or education and detaining someone in hospital if they were infectious. These powers could be exercised by a minister making regulations, in other words, subordinate legislation. These limited powers were occasionally used by ministers. One famous example is depicted in Russell T. Davis's It's a Sin, a 2021 television series about the beginning of the UK AIDS crisis in the 1980s. In a harrowing scene, one of the young protagonists suffering from AIDS finds himself in an empty hospital ward. When he tries to leave the room, he's blocked by a police officer. His mother is told that her son cannot leave because he is infectious and the authorities have been granted a court order for his detention under the Public Health Act of 1984. When she asks whether there is anything to stop her taking him out of here right now, the official replies frostily, the law of the land forbids you. The scene is frightening, not just because of the visceral depiction of the then little-known disease, but also the feeling that the shadowy bureaucracy of the state was assaulting the family as much as the illness itself. 
the incident was based on a true story. In 1985, a 29-year-old man with AIDS was reported to be the first person confined in a hospital under a new anti-AIDS law, a statutory instrument made under the Public Health Act. After what was described as a five-minute hearing, a magistrate's court ordered his continued detention at Monsell Hospital in Manchester. Following major protests and a second court hearing, the man was allowed to leave hospital after 10 days when it was considered he no longer needed to be detained. That 1985 statutory instrument, passed by then Health Secretary Ken Clark, was severe. It allowed a person to be detained in a hospital without being heard at court. Those who are familiar with mental health laws in this country may not be surprised by the powers available to public authorities when a person's detention could be justified by the protection of the public. But as oppressive as these laws can be, the powers are focused on individuals, not groups. In early 2020, Matt Hancock, the Minister of Health and Social Care, will have been briefed by his officials on what powers were available to him to control the spread of the novel coronavirus, rapidly appearing over the horizon, speeding in from multiple locations. But he will have been told about a very different Public Health Act to the one which Ken Clark used to try and prevent the spread of HIV. Because, since 1984, the Public Health Act had been extensively amended and the Minister's powers under it turbocharged. To understand how and why the Public Health Act 1984 became the enabler of the emergency state, we need to take a detour via Geneva and the headquarters of the World Health Organization. The United Kingdom is a founding member of the WHO and signed its constitution in 1946. Article 21 of the WHO Constitution grants the World Health Assembly the power to adopt regulations about sanitary and quarantine requirements and other procedures designed to prevent the international spread of disease. In 2005, at the 58th World Health Assembly, the regulations were updated. Why? Because the world had just experienced the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, outbreak. SARS, like COVID-19, is a coronavirus which was first identified in China. It appeared in November 2002. The WHO was notified in February 2003 and the outbreak was finally contained by 2004. It infected 8,096 people and caused at least 774 deaths worldwide. The 2005 changes to the international health regulations were intended to fix the problems exposed by the outbreaks of SARS and another dangerous disease, Ebola. One such problem was the dependence on notification by countries of new outbreaks. China had been criticised for the four months it took to notify the WHO of the first SARS case, which likely led to the outbreak taking longer to contain. And so, when the international health regulations came up for a review, tighter notification requirements were put in place. The Public Health Emergency of International Concern process was introduced to coordinate global cooperation during an international health crisis. The key message was that states were required, within five years, to strengthen their public health response capacities so they could rapidly respond to new public health emergencies and implement any recommendations for public health measures made by the WHO. The 
the WHO was saying to states that they needed to be ready. The next health emergency might not be as containable as SARS. The WHO was vague, however, on the kind of measures states might use. The purpose of the regulations was to control the international spread of disease in ways that are commensurate with and restricted to public health risks and which avoid unnecessary interference with international traffic and trade. The focus was on quarantining and isolating travellers to prevent the spread of an infectious disease from country to country. The regulations were also clear that all such measures should be taken with full respect for the dignity, human rights and fundamental freedoms of persons. Notably, the regulations did not explicitly authorise or mention large-scale lockdowns, which was no surprise given that by 2005 there hadn't been any. Within three years, the UK Parliament did as the WHO required. In 2008, the Public Health Act was amended explicitly to implement the International Health Regulations 2005. A suite of new powers was added to the Public Health Act, giving ministers the ability to do practically anything for the purpose of preventing, protecting against, controlling or providing a public health response to the incidence or spread of infection or contamination in England, including restrictions on gatherings, travel, children attending school and almost unlimited requirements on or in relation to persons, things or premises. And if the minister declared that, by reason of urgency, it is necessary to make the order without a draft being so laid and approved by Parliament, it would be possible for there to be no parliamentary scrutiny or approval for 28 days after the law had come into force, or if Parliament was in recess even longer. When the changes were debated in Parliament, only a few saw the breadth of the implications. On the 21st of May 2008, the seventh day of debate in the House of Lords, one member was eerily prescient when he said, It is a very sweeping power indeed. I say that because we are dealing here with measures which are not defined in the bill, but which ministers could bring into force more or less at the stroke of a pen, without the prior approval of a magistrate. Ministers, by regulation, are being given considerable power to limit and constrain the daily lives and freedoms of citizens. He asked for an illustration of the kinds of provisions which regulations were likely to contain in the event of, say, a SARS outbreak, and why there was apparently such a low threshold for requirements to be placed on persons, things and premises. Another member raised concerns that the new power for ministers did not have the same safeguards as those under the Civil Contingencies Act. A government minister responded, giving three examples of the kinds of measures the government had in mind. Recalling a contaminated cargo which had been dispersed across the country. Requiring all individuals working within poultry to wear protective clothing and undertake a decontamination regime to prevent the spread of avian flu. And empowering hospitals to require all visitors to SARS patients to wear protective clothing to reduce the risk of onward spread. In the very brief debate in the House of Commons, one MP said it was curious that the measures in this bill received almost no attention, despite being quite draconian. That was an extract of my new audiobook, Emergency State. 
If you would like to hear more, the full audiobook is available to download now from Audible, Apple Books, Google Play and more.